0: When speaking of the last years of Mexican rule over Arizona, state historian Thomas Sheridan summed it up succinctly, albeit maybe a tad pessimistically, as follows, quote, Mexican Arizona limped into the 1850s, maligned by gold seekers, lashed by Apache raids, ravaged by a cholera epidemic, end quote. And I believe you'll find that pretty much covers everything we talked about over the last couple episodes. And, not to be the bearer of bad news, that is not going to let up in today's episode either. We are in the last stretch now of the Mexicans trying to exert some control over the area before deciding to just take the cash buyout offer and turn all those problems over to the Americans. But, before we can get to that, it just wouldn't be the same podcast if we didn't pile the problems on a little higher. At the same time, the Yankees are also discovering just how truly beautiful, rugged, and hostile this place could be. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. (music) Episode 25. What's out there? While Americans, Mexicans, and questions were fighting over who would control the vital Colorado River crossing, explorations of the land that the U.S. had just acquired were starting to occur further north. Of course, explorations of the southern end of the new territory had been ongoing since 1849 as part of the surveying process as outlined in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. However, I'm still going to put off talking about that until I can fold it into the wider discussion of the upcoming Gadsden Purchase, which we'll cover in the next couple weeks. But in the early 1850s, it was up to the US Army's Corps of Topographical Engineers to start filling in the big blank spaces in the map somewhat with actual details about the land between New Mexico and California. I should also note here that much of this exploration wasn't discovery for discovery's sake, but the route for a future railroad was also at the back of everyone's mind when they made these expeditions. That's why in 1851 we find an outfit organizing in Santa Fe, under the command of Captain Lorenzo Sitgreaves to cross northern Arizona. His orders were to follow the Zuni River to its mouth, and then proceed on until he found the Colorado and was able to arrive at Fort Yuma. The expedition consisted of 20 men, including mountain man and guide Antoine Leroux, who he last saw helping lead the Mormon battalion across southern Arizona. While Sitgreaves is given much credit for what he's about to explore, I will add that early state historian James H. McClintock mentions that Sitgreaves gives passing notice in his reports to two small expeditions that may have preceded him in 1849. But since Sitgreaves is the only one that we have actual sources for, that's who we are going to follow for the moment. His small party made their way as far as the Zuni Pueblos, falling into step with an expedition heading up into Navajo territory. This other expedition might have been trying to reach Fort Defiance, established in 1851 to keep an eye on the Navajo. The fort would be the scene of a number of conflicts and would be abandoned and established a couple times during the 1860s. It remains an unincorporated community in Apache County to this day, sitting right there on the state line. After leaving the Zuni at the end of September, Sitgreaves and his company would follow the river almost to its confluence with the Little Colorado before striking west overland. They would encounter the larger river and then follow its course until they were north of the San Francisco Peaks, maybe in the area of present-day Cameron. From there, they headed southwest until eventually striking westward along the 35th parallel, which, for reference, corresponds more or less, if you squint and round the math a bit, with Interstate 40. Somewhere during this time, they had an encounter with a group of hostile Yavapais, and Leroux is said to have taken three arrows. I only mention this because state historian Marshall Trimble passes along an amusing anecdote that the doctor operating on Leroux, who survived by the way, had to do so one handed because he had been bitten earlier, on the other hand, by a rattlesnake. Yep. Frontier Arizona was just the gift that kept on giving. Eventually, Sitgreaves and his men would reach the Colorado and head southward, arriving exhausted and hungry at Fort Yuma on November 30, 1851. A little more than a year later, another expedition, this time heading from west to east, would also show the feasibility of a northern crossing of the new American territory. Francois Aubrey led a contingent of 18 men from Tejon Pass in California on July 10, 1853, heading toward the Zuni Pueblos. Aubrey already had some clout, having earned the nickname Skimmer of the Plains for his having ridden the 800 miles between St. Louis and Santa Fe in only five and a half days. His group would cross a little lower than Sitgreaves had, maybe closer to the latitude of Prescott, and at the edge of the Mogion Rim, though he didn't seem to have really kept detailed directions to help us peg down his exact route. His party had a number of run-ins with local tribes, each of which didn't seem too particularly welcoming. Aubrey describes a number of skirmishes, including one where men came out with their wives and children in a deliberate attempt to put them at ease. Most of his party were seriously injured in this attack, though they were able to drive the natives back. Another odd note from this expedition is that he claims at one point he came across a tribe that used honest-to-goodness gold bullets. As far as I can determine, this was never proven, and the tribe, if they ever even existed, have never been found by anybody else. Trimble says that this story from Aubrey seeded a lot of lost goldmine legends, sort of like an 1850s version of El Dorado. But by early September, the group had made it to the Zuni Pueblos, and Aubrey became a general supporter of a railroad route across the 35th parallel. The next month, Aubrey was in Albuquerque, where, as luck would have it, he ran into our next contestant, Lt. Emil W. Whipple. It's actually very fortunate these two were able to meet up, and Aubrey could pass along his notes about what he just experienced, mainly because the next year, Aubrey would die in a bar fight in Santa Fe. Whipple was actually several months out from Fort Smith in Arkansas, on his own expedition to explore the feasibility of a railroad route. You see, in March 1853, Congress had approved 150,000 for six railroad surveys of the West, including one along the 35th parallel. Lieutenant Whipple, who had cut his surveying teeth helping out the Boundary Commission a few years earlier, was tapped to lead this survey by Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, who would go on to have a more infamous career that you may be aware of. The expedition set out from Albuquerque in November 1853, striking westward. Among his company was frequent guide Antoine Leroux, who just couldn't seem to get enough of crossing Arizona. They again went through the Zuni Pueblos, but this time followed the Puerco River, sometimes called Rio Puerco of the West, to distinguish it from yet another Puerco River that flows in the opposite direction in New Mexico. They hit the Little Colorado River around modern-day Holbrook. After following it for some time, they struck west again and spent Christmas 1853 camped at the foot of the San Francisco Peaks near what would become Flagstaff. The expedition then skirted the northern end of Bill Williams Mountain, where McClintock notes that the surveyors were having trouble finding a good grade for the railroad. This problem has never been completely solved, as anyone traveling between Ash Fork and Williams on I-40 during a snowstorm can attest to. From there, they followed Sitgreaves' suggestion that a good route was following the Bill Williams River, so the expedition turned southwest. However, they actually had to find the river first, and according to McClintock at least, they mistook the West Fork of the Verde River for it initially. Finally, they found the Wright River, and even a suitable place for a railroad bridge. And with that, they kept heading westward, eventually reaching Los Angeles in late March 1854. But while these surveyors were finally able to map and catalog what was out there in the wilds of Arizona, it shouldn't be forgotten that this was still the frontier, and what was out there wasn't always that friendly to newcomers. Nothing illustrates this point so much as the Oatman Massacre. In southwestern Arizona, there's a spot called Oatman Flat on the south bank of the Gila River that is northwest of Sentinel and just west of the Painted Rock Petroglyph site and campground. The site is named after the Oatman family, consisting of Royce Oatman, his wife, and seven children. The Oatmans had left Independence, Missouri in 1850 to proceed west. Most of their party decided to winter in Tucson or along the Oden villages on the Gila. But in February 1851, Royce and his family perhaps after hearing from another traveler that the path to Yuma was free from hostile natives, decided to press on by themselves. They had made it to the area of Oatman Flat and were just packing up to begin moving again when they were approached by a group of about 19 natives. Originally, these were thought to have been Tonto Apache, but the modern consensus is that they were most likely Yavapais. By all the accounts I've read, these natives asked for food. One narrative says that they started by asking for tobacco, which Royce provided. But this apparently set off a a a if-you-give-a-pig-a-pancake situation, because when they had finished smoking, the natives then asked for pinole, or basically cornmeal. Royce protested here, arguing that he still had a long trip ahead and he couldn't just give his family's food away. Finally, though, he relented some and passed out some bread he had. And then, of course, the natives asked for more once that was consumed. When Roy said he didn't have any more, one native asked for meat, and others started rummaging around in the family's wagon. When the family's indignation got loud enough, the natives pulled back a few paces and started conferring with each other in their own language. This is basically the part in the movie where you start yelling at the characters on screen to start running away for their lives. They didn't, however, and with a series of yells, the natives pulled out war clubs and began to attack the entire family. Royce, his wife, and four of his children were all beaten to death within a matter of minutes. One of his sons, Lorenzo, all of 14, was also clubbed in the head and staggered to the edge of the bluff and fell over the side. The only ones to be spared are 13-year-old Olive and 8-year-old Mary Ann, were taken captive. But the story doesn't end here. The natives, who didn't have the luxury of watching television or movies, were ignorant of the golden rule of if you don't see the body, then there was no death. Because Lorenzo, while badly injured, is still alive. He somehow managed to get back to the Odom villages, where he joined another wagon train bound for California and he wouldn't rest until he found help to rescue his two sisters. Lorenzo joined several expeditions to the Colorado, using the opportunity to search the southern stretches of California and parts of Arizona for his missing family members. He asked for help from anyone who would listen, and even printed articles in local newspapers to raise awareness of his sister's plight. Meanwhile, the sisters didn't have an easy go of it. After roughly a year, the natives who captured them eventually traded them to the Mojaves. Marianne would die during a famine, but Olive survived, even eventually receiving the customary chin tattoo of the Mojave women. Finally, in 1856, an employee at Fort Yuma named Henry Grinnell learned about a white captive among the Mojave. He had read somewhere about the Omen family and connected all the dots. He made inquiries with the natives, but was told... They knew nothing about this family of which he spoke. So Grinnell, following the example of Spock from Wrath of Khan, exaggerated a bit, and let it be known that a large army was even then being raised to march east from California and fall on the Mojave unless the girls were returned. The bluff worked, and after negotiating for a few trinkets, Olive was released and eventually reunited with her brother. The Oatman Massacre, as it has come to be known, was one of the most sensational, and sensationalized, stories to come out of the Gila Trail era. Accounts at the time even included dramatic flourishes about Olive going mad from her captivity and living out the rest of her days in an insane asylum. In truth, she would go on to marry, raise a family, and die at the age of 64. The whole affair is a reminder that as Americans and natives started to rub up against each other, each side would give the other cause for hatred and reprisals, which will not end well for either party. For those in Tucson, the constant vacillation of the native tribes between friend and foe had been old hat for decades. And since the new era of peace with the Apaches had melted away like a snowfall in the desert back in 1850, The Mexican soldiers were finding things back to normal, of striking and being struck. A year after the Oatman Massacre, so late April or early May 1852, a company out of Tucson comprised mainly of Odom and Apache Monso, came across a large Apache camp on the Black River south of the White Mountains. Launching an attack at 3 in the morning, they were able to scatter the Apache, killing 14, and retrieving two Odom captives. Of course, the Apaches felt they had to retaliate, so in mid-June, a group of 300 of them suddenly sprang out of the underbrush at Tucson. No one was killed, but they did manage to start driving off oxen, mules, horses, 300 cows, and more than a thousand sheep. Corporal Ramon Comadaran son of Tucson's late captain, was caught outside during the attack, but managed to get away with his life by riding his horse bareback to safety. He also was remarkably not injured when the barrel of his gun exploded while he was trying to fire it. Captain Comedaran had been replaced by Captain Agustin Romanos, who immediately ordered a counterattack. A contingent was able to sally forth and give battle, eventually forcing the Apaches to give up most of the animals they were trying to escape with. By late afternoon, another group of some 100 men, including 12 Frenchmen who had recently set up shop in Tucson, rode out to deal some more retribution. This group reached Cañada del Oro, but decided they were too far away to continue the chase now. They did, however, find footprints made by Yankee-made shoes, meaning either the Apaches had received them through trade, Or, potentially worse, they had been helped by the Yankees themselves. Shortly after this affair, the Border Survey Commission, which I swear we'll get to eventually, passed through Tucson in July 1852. They found the military colony full of soldiers. General Miguel Blanco, the newly minted military commander for Sonora, was ready to ride out against the Apache in light of the recent attacks. Here we find Blanco telling U.S. Boundary Commissioner John Russell Bartlett that again his men have found prints of obvious U.S. make. In case you are wondering, the American shoes are identifiable because they tend to be larger and have distinctive heel marks, at least according to Blanco. Bartlett and the other surveyors camped along the Santa Cruz near Tucson, close to an American party passing through on its way to San Francisco, with a flock of nearly 14,000 sheep. This is interesting only because they employed 45 Americans and 15 Mexicans to watch the animals and make sure that no Apache got any ideas. I should also note here that there was good money to be made in moving livestock these days. Many Sonorans, finding only hostility and racism in the California goldfields, had decided to move into providing livestock and goods to the Americans. These livestock drivers were treated better than the miners had been, and after the establishment of Fort Yuma, the size of the flocks crossing the Colorado only increased. In August 1852, one such herd crossing into California was numbered at 28,000 sheep and 80 mules. Bartlett, who one source characterizes as more interested in writing a book about his travels than actually surveying the boundary has left us sketches of Tucson and the remains of El Pueblito, along with some written reports. According to him, only a small portion of the land around the Santa Cruz River was actually being cultivated. The land that was in production was producing corn, peas, beans, lentils, onions, and pumpkins. Nearby orchards were also producing apples, pears, peaches, and grapes. However, the frontier town didn't exactly charm him. He wrote, quote, The houses are all of adobe, and the majority are in a state of ruin. End quote. He continues on that repairs didn't seem to happen at all, and when a place became uninhabitable, the people, who he stylized as miserable tenants, simply moved into, quote, some other hovel where they may eke out their existence. End quote. Bartlett also gives us a note about there being 300 soldiers in Tucson at the time, which was no doubt due to Blanco's impending Apache campaign. Once again, we'll follow more extensively with Bartlett soon, but suffice it to say his party headed south, where they encountered San Javier del Bac. While praising its church, he did match the 49ers in saying what a shame it was that the Mexicans had simply abandoned these places instead of fully cultivating it, Something, no doubt, that the Americans would not have failed to do. Over the next couple months, as they moved south and then eventually east, the surveyors would encounter more troops, first south of Tumacocri and then near the San Bernardino Ranch. Once again, we are treated to a bit of American arrogance coupled with Mexican destitution. Bartlett characterizes the Mexican soldiers by saying, "...a more miserable set of men I never met." "...certainly none calling themselves soldiers. Some were destitute of shirts, others of pantaloons, and some had neither coats nor hats. Some wore overcoats without a rag of clothing beneath." General Blanco, who Bartlett met in Tucson in July, had planned a full-scale assault on the Apache in October when the weather cooled down. However, before he could get that started, Another matter called all military thinking southward back into Sonora. Remember how I mentioned a few minutes ago some French settlers in Tucson? Well, they were not the only Frenchmen around. A group had been led from San Francisco to Sonora by the French count Gaston de Rosset-Bourbon in June 1851. Bolbon decided he liked the place enough to go into open revolt and tried to take Sonora for himself and declare it independent. He even began to style himself Sultan of Sonora. What's really funny about this is he entered the country under the guise of a mining company called La Compañía Restauradora de la Mina de la Arizona, or the Restorer Company of the Arizona Mine. It just goes to show you how firmly entrenched now the notion of the fabulously wealthy mine of Arizona was in popular culture. Joined by some of the French settlers at Tucson, Bourbon and his fellow filibusters managed to capture the town of Magdalena on October 1st. Two weeks later, they were even camped around Hermosillo, Sonora's largest settlement. They would actually manage to capture the city but soon found that exactly zero of the Mexicans were on their side in this little rebellion, so they had to withdraw. This minor rebellion collapsed with Bolbon becoming seriously ill and sailing out of the port of Guaymas at the end of 1852. But just so you know, this isn't the last we'll see a Bolbon or filibusters deciding that Sonora would make a great new personal fiefdom. The downside to this amusing little expedition is that it tied the army up for some time, which allowed the Apaches to, once again, run the table. But that was rather predictable, wasn't it? At the beginning of the new year, 1853, we also find now ex-governor Manuel Maria Gandra fully investing in his sheep ranch at Calabasas, near modern-day Rio Rico. Apparently suffering no compunctions about the fact that he, or rather his brother-in-law, had swiped the site out from under the noses of the natives, Gandra signed a contract with some German immigrants to run the ranch, which he would stock with 5,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, some cattle, and draft horses. His attention to the ranch would be delayed, however, because in 1853, news came up from the south that our old and dear friend, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, had somehow managed, again, to have himself declared dictator in what would turn out to be his last grasp at power in his native country. But for our purposes, this means that Gondra was able to finagle yet another term as governor of Sonora, along with an appointment as military commander as well. And in this role, he appointed a new comandante for Tubac itself. His choice was a friend and ally, Andres Zenteno, and historian James Officer gives the cynical view that his appointment was probably to ensure the prosperity of Gondra's new ranching operation. Before he could get up to his new assignment, Tubac had to deal with another crisis without him. On June 11, 1853, news came into Tucson that Apaches had attacked the La Canoa Ranch, south of modern Green Valley, and carried the owner captive. A small force rode out in pursuit but not far away from Tubac, they found a large band of Apaches in the process of murdering some mail riders. The Tucson Company turned around to warn Tubac, but the Apaches actually beat them to the punch before striking yet another small company of post riders north of the settlement. More soldiers were called for, and they pursued these Apaches into the Santa Rita Mountains, eventually being able to rescue the captive taken from Loch Noah. When Centeno finally got onto scene in Tubac, One of his first assignments was relocating some of the Apache monso living at Tucson back to their original home in Tubac. Then, in late July 1853, Zenteno was raring to get into the field and show off his military skill. Since Tubac only had 25 soldiers, he asked for help from Tucson for a campaign against the Apache. Tucson rejected his proposal, knowing full well how these things typically went. Zenteno seized over this, complaining loudly to Gondra. But he apparently had other things to worry about as a group of Apache monso from Tubac actually rode south to Uras to complain specifically against Zenteno and his harsh treatment of them. Gondra was getting an earful from everyone it seems. In late September 1853, He received a letter from a local prefect containing a list of complaints from Tucson Justice of the Peace, Jesus Maria Ortiz, about how the military colony policy was hosing people out of land and water. The prefect summed up the situation by saying, quote, "...the soldiers have been transformed into laborers and servants of the commanding officers, working only for the utility and advantage of the latter, and not for their own benefit, that of the treasury or the fatherland. They are charged to the plow and the spade when they should be instructed in the use of arms and employed against the barbarians who every day invade, assault, and destroy the state." The prefect added his own note that the money spent on the military colonies should have been spent on sending aid instead. He finished with his two cents that if Gondra didn't do something soon, People would abandon Tucson to find work elsewhere, most likely in U.S.-controlled California. Between the complaints from Zenteno and now this, Gondra responded with general orders to put an end to all this nonsense. First and foremost, he addressed Zenteno's complaint by saying, yes, you have to help each other when a call goes out. No more of this turning down a request for aid. Secondly, he cited a provision in Ruby's 1772 regulations, oh that takes us back, and ordered the heads of all the military colonies to return all farmland taken from community residents immediately. Though Officer does note that, in the case of the outlying fields around Tucson at least, this order apparently was straight up ignored. A couple months later, Gandra also put to bed the lack of a full-time commander at Tucson. The colony had been working with interim commanders for the past several years since Comodaran's death, mainly Ensign Manuel Romero, with help from Comodaran's son Joaquin. But on November 9th, gandra decreed that Zenteno would be in charge of the military colonies at Tucson and Santa Cruz, as well as Tubac. His standing orders were to ensure that a sufficient number of men were posted at each one, and that these men were ready to repel any attack. Although Gandhra did keep his own interest in mind, and also said that a detachment of six soldiers should be stationed at Gandhra's ranch at Calabasas, you know, just in case. They could also feel free to help round up animals and guard them if they wanted. Zantana was also ordered to express gratitude to the Odom and make sure they knew they could keep any livestock captured from the Apaches. In return for this largesse, however, they needed to promise to send aid and mounts to help the Mexicans if necessary. Of course, none of these orders came with even the promise of more supplies or money to the colonies, so it wasn't like they suddenly made life any easier. In January 1854... Zenteno had to borrow mules and sacks from the Germans working in the Calabasas ranch to send men to Santa Cruz to get food because Tubac had none left to feed its troops. A corporal and six soldiers formed this wagon train. However, after getting the supplies, they were ambushed by Apaches on their way back north. Two soldiers were killed, and another appears to have just simply ran off. Even worse, the oxen and mules they had were cut loose and driven off. When this news reached Tubac, Centeno sent a letter to the governor. In it, he promised that if no help was sent to him, and like pronto, he would abandon his post at Tubac and relocate south to Santa Cruz. He didn't care if it would result in a court-martial. That was better than starving to death or being picked off by the Apaches. What he didn't know is that soon it would not matter at all. You see... Two weeks before this threat, the American minister to Mexico, one Mr. James Gatston, had just finished negotiating a deal between the two governments. Soon, the defense and staffing of Tucson, San Javier del Bac, Tubac, and Calabasas would no longer be Mexico's problem. So join me next week as we jump back in time a bit to discuss the torturous process of trying to finalize the border between the U.S. and Mexico. It will be so long and torturous that it will take us two episodes to get through. And, halfway through the process, various interests in the United States led them to asking Mexico to be able to take just a bit more off the top. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ. THE HISTORY OF ARIZONA. GOODBYE.